Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Whether you are listening to the audio version on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whether you are watching the live stream on our website, faithonhill.com, whether you're watching the video on our Facebook page, we are glad that you are here. You can follow us on social media, at Faith on Hill on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we have content that releases throughout the week, and this week, uh, and you'll hear why when we get into the Bible study, but this week we are going to be releasing extra content um, from this part of the Bible, and so you can check our podcast or video feeds uh, for that extra content. We meet together on Sunday mornings, and then we scatter out, and we gather in small groups throughout the week, and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We're still in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, so you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue to study God's Word together. Well, last week we began to look at one of the five major teachings or discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount, which we are looking at last week, this week, and the next several weeks. Jesus had a large crowd gather to hear him teach. He went on top of what they called a mountain, what we would call a hill, and began to teach them. So last week we talked about Jesus' teachings on living in the supreme blessings or the beatitudes of God. And this week Jesus continues in chapter 5, verse 17, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teachings and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the main point of this teaching is about who is a part of the kingdom of heaven. It's not about murder or divorce or adultery. It's not about keeping which rule or one rule over another. It is about entering the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom. It is the kingdom of those who are saved from the coming judgment. It is the kingdom of those who have experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God through Jesus our Lord. How do I know if I am a part of God's kingdom? Because religious faiths all over the world and all through history have said if you do these things, then you will be a follower of whatever divinity or belief system or philosophy that they proclaim. So Jesus is saying, how do you know whether you are actually part of God's kingdom, God's people, God's ways, or if you are just somebody who thinks that, but it's not true? 
That's the, the thing we have to think about is not missing the forest for the trees because it's tempting when you get into verse 21 and onward and there's sections on murder and adultery, divorce, justice, all of these things and then we're going to spend a week on each and there's a worthy argument for doing that. But in, instead of spending a week or two weeks on each subject, then we miss the forest for the trees. The big idea that Jesus is trying to get across is not a college lecture class on morality. Jesus isn't, isn't trying to teach you all of the finer points of how God views murder or how God views oaths or, or vows. He's trying to get across this idea of our need for salvation by grace through faith. That there's nothing that we can do to be good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. So God himself made the way when he became a man and lived among us and died and rose again three days later. Now, it starts in verse 17, this section of the teaching where Jesus says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why would he say that? Well, partially because of what he's about to teach. Because he is going to say, um, they're actually, it's bigger than you think it is. But it's also partially because you could see where people who were fed up with the religious system of the day, the high priests were collaborating with their occupiers. They had to know about the hypocrisy among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And people were fed up, so they see this new religious revolutionary and they think he's going to get rid of the old system and set up something new. And Jesus says, no, I haven't come to get rid of the old system. I've come to make it work. I've come to fulfill it. People like to project onto Jesus. We all do it. In, in the Gospels, we read how people wanted Jesus to be a political leader. They tried to make him a king. There were those who were looking for a military leader, you know. Some of the disciples, they had weapons ready to go. There were others who thought, you know, maybe he'll, he'll just break up this whole thing and start something new. Everyone wants to project onto Jesus. And that's kind of how we are in modern times, is that we have the Jesus we like. Some people like following the hippie pacifist Jesus. Some people like following the warrior Jesus. Some people like the Jesus who's like, always got my back. And he never says anything uh, negative to me, you know. We all have our versions of Jesus that we like, and then we project on what we are comfortable with. We project that on to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, listen to what I'm saying. Don't project onto him. He's saying, hey, this is what I'm proclaiming. And as followers of Jesus, we say, I'm getting rid of my own projections. And wherever I find Jesus disagreeing with what I've projected onto him, I need to remove that and get closer to what Jesus has said that he is or what he's about or what he's doing. So he says, hey, I didn't come to get rid of everything. So if you came here thinking I'm going to just get rid of everything, I didn't. If you came here thinking that I am going to start something, you know, totally reject everything else. I didn't. I came to make it work. I came to fulfill it. He says the law is going to be something that I fulfill. And until this world ends and God creates a new heaven and a new earth, the law of God is still there and still judging humanity. The Ten Commandments 
still stand in judgment and witness against us that we are sinners. You can go read the Ten Commandments. That could be your homework. Which one of them haven't you broken? And maybe before this morning you would say, oh, bunch, I haven't murdered, I haven't done this. Jesus is going to suggest that there is not a single one of the commandments that each and every one of us has not broken. Now, he ends it by saying, uh, I tell you that unless your righteousness, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that you will by no means, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about the most spiritual person that you can think of, the most holy person that you can think of, the, 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 the most faithful, devout person that you can think of. And everybody has a different metric for what that is or a different standard for how they would assess that. But let's just take your standard, your, your assessment. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law in that day and in that culture would have been considered the pinnacle of devotion, of faithfulness, of religiosity, of piety, of all of these words that we use to describe. And Jesus says, hey, look at the standard that they've set for themselves. And it's not enough. You have to be more righteous than that if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is a verse that is worthy of its own study. But I want to plant that there because we are going to come back to it at the end. So Jesus has set up the teaching. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. But your righteousness needs to surpass the most holy person you can think of. Spoiler alert. It will not. He goes on here, verse 21, he says, You have heard it was said to the people long ago. So the people would be the people of Israel. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, they will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. This idea is, he says, hey, you've, you've heard, like this is nothing new, that murder is bad. You have heard that, you know, if you murder somebody, you are guilty. But Jesus says, if you had hate in your heart for somebody, you have committed murder already. Because what, what Jesus is talking about, we like to talk about the symptoms. We like to talk about the stuff we can see. Many people know the verse that says, you know, only God can look at the heart. And that's true. So what do we do? Since we can't see the internal thoughts and motives and everything going on inside of a person, what do we do? We can only look at the outward. And so we look and say, hey, did they murder somebody? Did they not murder somebody? Well, they murdered somebody. That's really bad. But because God can see everything, he doesn't just see our actions. He sees the deep motivation behind it. He looks at it from a totally different perspective. And he says the same hatred, the same internal violence that causes somebody to raise a hand to another human 
same root of wickedness is all there for God to see. So Jesus is saying to the people, oh, you say murder's bad, right? And everybody goes, yes, murder's bad. Jesus is saying, do you have hate in your heart for somebody? Is there somebody you have never forgiven? Is there somebody that for, for five months or 50 years that you have resented, that you have had only bad thoughts towards, only harmful thoughts towards, only a, a direction of malice towards? He says, as far as God is concerned, it's the same thing. Who have you hated? What Jesus is going to start doing is he's going to start challenging our fantasy about good and evil. Because what humans do is we establish a baseline, a neutral baseline, and on one side is good and one side is evil. This isn't anything new. I've talked about it before. But what we do is we say this is sort of human neutral, and we say everything on this side of the line is good and everything on this side of the line is evil. But how do we come at that? If we're all sinners... If every person is inherently wicked, and I believe that that is true, that is definitely what the Christian faith proclaims, and, and experientially I have found that to be true, so then how do we say, well, there's a good person over there? Well, partially how we do that is by establishing a human baseline, and then we can say everybody on that side of the line, murderers, you know, people that are, are, those are the bad people, but you've never murdered anyone, you've never done this, you've never, you know, robbed a bank. Okay, yeah, you're not perfect, no one is, but we classify you as good. You're the good people. And over there, you're the person who's done this, we'll classify you as the bad people. But our baseline moves. Our baseline moves. Because there are people who have done what, what the human baseline of good and evil would say is a bad thing, except then we say, oh, but there was all these things, so now we're going to say it's actually a good thing. Get into that more in a minute. But the bigger idea that Jesus is trying to say is, you think that because you were born into this religious faith that that's enough, you think because you keep certain traditions or observances or you do this or you don't do that, that that's enough. But he says your righteousness needs to surpass the most holy person you can think of for you to even have a shot at getting into the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts, instead of saying, now this is how you could do that, he actually says, you're actually far worse off than you think. Why? Because you don't think of yourself as a murderer. But how God sees the world is a world full of murderers. This whole thing about Raqqa, I, I always wonder, like, why is it that the Bible translators keep a, um, an ancient word in when they're translating into English? Well, the reason is that Raqqa would have been an Aramaic word. So Matthew wrote in Greek, but for whatever reason, he chose to keep this Aramaic word in. So it would have been like, if you were reading the original version of this, you're reading Greek, or English for us, right? And then all of a sudden you see the one Aramaic word that Matthew chooses to leave in because it was a term of violence. It was a threatening term. There was probably a little bit of vulgarity to it. 
what Matthew is saying is, what Jesus is saying through Matthew, is that if you threaten someone with violence, that's a crime. It is. It is. If, if you walked into a room and you pulled a weapon on somebody and you said, I am going to kill you, right? The police would come and arrest you. And you say, I didn't hurt them. I didn't do anything. I was just saying words. We all know that you would still be arrested for the threat of violence. You know, just because somebody didn't actually pull the trigger, but they hired the hitman, they still are guilty. We, we understand that there, you don't actually have to do something to be guilty of something. And so Jesus is pointing that out because in their culture, they had the same idea that you could threaten violence against somebody and it would still be a, a, a guilty thing. So Jesus is saying the same thing. If in your heart you have nothing but contempt and malice for someone else, then you are a murderer. And we see that all through our world, don't we, right now? The young have contempt for the old. The old have contempt for the young. The right has contempt for the left. The left has contempt for the right. Everybody has contempt for the middle. Like It's, it's every, everywhere we see this. Jesus is, is saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And then he goes on from murder. He says, if there is an offering, verse 23, uh, if you are offering a gift at the altar, so you're at the temple, you're sacrificing, there's worship happening, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And so what Jesus is saying, he's using a real-life example. You know, somebody is taking you to court over something you've done. And Jesus is saying, you got to settle that because you're going to lose the case. It's as if, uh, let's say you stole from somebody and you're being taken to court. And you're like, I'm going to fight this. Jesus is saying, you know what? You're going to lose. And the same is true with the justice of God. All of us have sinned and justice demands that something be done about it. And Jesus is saying, there's coming a time where it's too late. So repent now of our violence and our murder. And again, who have we not done violence to? Who have we hated? Who have we not loved? Who, Jesus is saying, you have a chance in this moment. Take it. And then he goes on, verse 27. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose control of one part of your body than for you to lose your whole, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is a well-known passage for a couple of reasons. It deals with sex and it deals with dismemberment. A friend of mine sent me a news article this week, and the headline said, local police 
find man walking down the street carrying his own severed arm. Now, my friend had no idea that I was teaching these verses, uh, and I said, oh man, what timing. That's a new story that'll get you to click. Jesus is again trying to expand the idea of good versus evil. Because if we're only grading on our flawed view of what is good and what is evil, then we will find all kinds of ways to say that we are okay. I haven't killed anyone. Jesus says, really? Who have you hated? Who have you done violence to in your heart, with your words, with your thoughts? Well, I've never, I've never cheated on, you know, I've never committed adultery. I've always, you know, yeah, I've, I've, I've fooled around here and there, but it's always been consensual with, you know, I wasn't with anybody. I was single. I, and then when I'm with somebody, I am straight shooter. I just stick with them. Jesus says, hey, you've been told not to commit adultery. And adultery means exactly what you think it means. Having sexual relations outside of a marriage relationship. He says, you've heard that, right? But I tell you that anyone who looks at woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is speaking to men here, but I believe this applies to women as well. So let us just say that any person, this is a men and women issue. You say, oh, that's just a man problem. Only men look at at, uh, inappropriate images. Only men have lustful thoughts. Well, look, statistically, yes, men are, are far more likely to engage in that type of sinful action. But we know that like 30 to 35% of women in the church view pornography, and that number is actually growing. Uh, we, we know that um, while there are plenty of men who have affairs, that there are also plenty of women who have affairs, and maybe their lust or sinful desire is different or expresses itself differently. Maybe it's an emotional affair. But these things are the same idea. This idea of you, you just think it's, uh, it's about actually going through with the deed. But Jesus is calling us to recognize a sexual ethic that is far bigger than that. This idea of, of walking in what last week we talked about being pure in heart versus this idea of saying, you know what, it's all fantasy. And, and so it's okay for me to look at whatever or do whatever because I'm not actually doing anything. Jesus is saying it's the same thing. We're a church full of adulterers. Why? Because everyone has had a lustful thought. And, and whether we say that or not, this is, this is the, what Jesus is saying. What have you lusted after? You think, oh, well, I've never committed adultery. Now, Again, murder, adultery, these are things that we could spend a lot of time talking about. And this week, I'm going to put out like very short kind of short sermons, micro teachings, whatever you want to call them, about each subject to get into it deeper. But I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I want to focus on the big idea that Jesus is saying, oh, really? You think you've never murdered anybody? What violence have you done in your mind? Oh, you think you've never cheated on, on anyone? What have you done in your inner thoughts, your inner actions? And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off. We're going to get into that more uh, in the little short teaching that will be released this week. And you can follow uh, our Facebook page, uh, our, our Apple podcast, or Spotify. And that'll, that's where all of our content gets released. That's where it'll be. Then he goes on and he keeps digging in. He talks about divorce. Verse 31. 
It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. Again, Jesus is addressing the males in the crowd and I think this applies both genders, male and female. We'll get more into this when I release that sort of short teaching on each of these subjects. But I think part of the reason why he's addressing men here only is because in that culture, only men could initiate the divorce. Only men could initiate the divorce. It wasn't right. It wasn't how it should have been. Nothing about this was right, really. But that's how it was. So he is saying, hey, what sin are you blind to? There's other parts of the Gospels where Jesus is asked, why did Moses in the law allow for divorce if you say it's not a good thing? And then other parts of the Old Testament, it says God hates divorce. Why did Moses allow it? And Jesus says it was because of the hardness of our ancestors' hearts. Their hearts were so hard to God that in this area, what God told Moses is, the people are going to ignore me. So I want you to set up a, a system so that at least there can be some protections and some, some ways of dealing with these things in, in legal terms. Now, that has some interesting implications uh, that I'm not going to get into right now in terms of how Christians view civic uh, issues. I think the bigger thing is this, what sin are we blind to? Because in terms of divorce, in their culture— it would not have been considered sinful under the right circumstances to get divorced. And there are things in each and every culture and each and every era of history where the culture has said, this is okay. And the church is a symbiotic organism. We are separate. We are the kingdom of heaven, but we're also part of whatever culture we find ourselves in. And so then we have to kind of process what's something that is neutral. It's just a, a cultural thing. It's neither good nor bad. It's just what it is. Uh, Thanksgiving is, is not a Christian holiday. There's no one, nowhere in the Bible that mandates that we celebrate Thanksgiving Day on, in November. And so it's neutral. And there's other things that we have to kind of evaluate, like Halloween. How do we handle this? How do we handle that? The idea is that there are things... There are Christians, I believe this, one of the things that really is, is hard for some people in our day is to look back at the writings of godly, spiritual women and men who were also racist or who had other problematic beliefs or actions. And we look and we say, what about those guys? What do we do with their writings? And I think it's worthy to question. I think it's worthy to process. I mean, you got to think through some of this stuff because... It's there. That being said, that assumes that we've got it all figured out. And what in our day has the church said is no big deal? You know, Jesus said, hey, you've heard it's okay. And that's true. In their culture, they thought it was fine. You know, there were some rabbis who taught, you know, you shouldn't get divorced unless there has been adultery. They were the really conservative ones. And then there were some rabbis that taught, like, literally any reason. Your wife burns, the, burns dinner, uh, you know, whatever the reason is, like any reason to get divorced is fine. And then there were the more conservatives, but all of them would have said, yeah, divorce is fine, whatever. That's not a big deal. Jesus is saying, hey, 
if you divorce somebody, if you leave your wife and marry another woman, other than sexual immorality, then you've committed adultery. Now, somebody will immediately say, what about abuse? What about this? Look, first of all, I'm just going to say, I'm going to talk about that later this week. But also, this is just this verse. There are other teachings from Jesus and from the rest of his scripture that I believe give a wider context to this. So don't feel like there is any condemnation. We have divorced people in our church. We have people who have not stayed in one marriage. The grace of God is huge. In some cases, they were divorced before they were Christians. In other cases, they were Christians, but they got divorced. And the grace of God is so big that he heals and moves even in that brokenness. And then there are others who, you know what? We're just working through stuff. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's not the end of the world. It's not that you can't do anything or that God, you're always a second-class citizen. And some Christians and some churches have acted like that, and that shouldn't be. Because Jesus is saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he's saying, oh, you go and say, I've never, I've never done anything bad. And maybe you've got your head straight on divorce, but maybe there's some other sin that has not really shook us and we're complacent about it. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here. What sin are you blind to? What sin am I blind to? And then he begins to talk about oaths. We would maybe call them vows. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, or uh, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even one hair... Uh, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no, and anything beyond that comes from the evil one. <laughs> What's all this stuff about vows? I mean, does, I, I made vows on my wedding day. Is Jesus saying that's evil? No. Oaths and vows were a big part of ancient religion, and they are still parts of many modern religions. And so they would say, I have taken this vow, I have done this holy thing, um, I have, you know, I've done this big religious show. And Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, uh, you guys make a big deal about this. But what's more important, all these vows that you take are just living consistently. What loophole have you found? Because we know that the uh, Pharisees, the teachers of the law, Jesus called them out. And he said, hey, you guys... You guys make a big deal about taking these vows. I vow to give this much money to the temple, or I vow to give this much money to establish a new um, religious school, or I devout, you know, whatever. And then when it's time for you to take care of some family member, somebody who you have a responsibility towards, and, and you say, I can't, I can't take care of you. Somebody else is going to have to do it because the money I was going to use to take care of you, I pledged to this religious school or I pledged to the temple. And it's almost a kickback system too because if you're the Pharisee the, that's the rabbi over the school that you just established, right? You basically found a way to not take care of somebody that you had an obligation to take care of and 
set yourself up. So there was definitely uh, corruption and conflicts of interest implied in what's going on here. The big idea is what loopholes you find. Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But what religious people do is they set up a bunch of ways so that they can look good on the outside and then do the opposite when no one is paying attention. It's like the magician. Hey, no, everybody look over here. And, and in my left, my right hand's like, hey, everybody look over here. And my left hand is doing whatever the trick is, okay? That's what religious people, look how good I am. Look how holy I am. And over here, I'm doing something not great. Look at all the great things I'm doing. Look at all the great things I'm doing. Over here is all the people that are being hurt. What loopholes have we found? Jesus is talking about finding ways to look like we are holy, finding ways to look like we keep God's law, and then actually not doing it. And he's just saying, just do the basic things. Yes be yes, your no be no. Just be a straight shooter. And then he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. Now, this is a very well-known verse, turn the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, most of your Bibles will separate this from verse 43 on the section about loving your enemies, but I actually think that it's linked. Verse 43, how you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and it sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, or are not even the tax collectors doing that? So he takes the worst sinner. And you can, everyone has their thing what the worst sinner in our culture is, you know. Whether it's a um, politician or a prostitute or a preacher, it just depends on who you ask. Uh, but what's the worst sinner? For them, it would have been tax collectors. He says, even the tax collectors are doing that. Even the tax collectors love people who love them back. Verse 47, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, you've heard eye for an eye. You've heard that if something, somebody does something wrong to me, then I'm going to do something equally to them as justice. And then he says, instead of that, if somebody hits you, don't hit back. Turn the other cheek. And then he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbors, but I tell you to love your enemies. He says, everybody, who doesn't do that? Who, you know, oh, I love my kids. You know, I love grandma. Like there are people, just everybody, who, who doesn't, right? Why? Because they do all this nice stuff for me. But what about if grandma's not so nice to you? What about if your neighbor is vindictive or... Um, you know, you, you hear all these horror stories of bad neighbors and, and conflicts and things. Jesus is putting it this way. He's saying, if you want to be more righteous than the most righteous person, and again, the whole point of this is how to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, hey, you've got to be more loving than anyone else. And you have to be more righteous than anyone else. How deep is your love go? You say, oh, I'm a loving person. 
and then somebody treats you terribly. Uh, one of the most memorable things I've ever learned in, in kind of mentorship as I was coming up as a, a pastor was somebody said, it, everyone says they want to be a servant until somebody treats them like a servant. And it's true. Oh, I just want to love God and serve people. And then somebody treats you like a servant and you go, hey, you can't do that. You can't treat me like that. Who are my enemies? I'm not going to tell you, but I have them. And so do you. They may not be like literal enemies that have like, they're sharpening their knives, plotting to harm me or you, right? But we all have people that we would consider an enemy. We all have groups of people, because that's a lot easier. If it's one person, then we might actually have to get to know them. But if I can dehumanize them and only think of them as a group, that's even easier. I hate every person like that. Jesus is saying, you know what? The kingdom of heaven is about loving your enemies. Because we were God's enemies. We were opposed to God. And Jesus came for us to rescue us. Now, maybe you read this list and you were challenged. And maybe you read through this and you were discouraged because you said, hey, how can anybody enter the kingdom of heaven? How can anyone enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I know that I'm not perfect. And I can read through this and I can go, oh my goodness. I, there's no way. The whole point of this teaching is not about a Christian morality code. Like I said, it is tempting and, and, it, and maybe other times worthy to do whole, you know, full sermons on each section here. But that's not the point of what Jesus is trying to get at. The point of what Jesus is trying to get at is that we are so desperately in need of a Savior. And I can walk around and think that I'm a good person but like we talked about last, last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit is the person who admits their brokenness. All of us, all of us stand guilty before God. The poor in spirit is the one who admits it and says, Lord, forgive me. How can I be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect? How can I be more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? How can I get into the kingdom of heaven? I can't. You can't. You could, you could say, I am going to do everything I can to just live perfect before God from now on. I am going to cut out everything. You know, this whole thing in adultery about cutting off your arm. I am going to, I am going to cut off all of my media. I'm going to cut off my cable. My, there's nothing I can't see anything bad. And then I am going to just do nothing but nice things for people around me. But to make that easier, I'm just going to move to a small town where I only have to like be nice to 10 people instead of 10,000, right? Like I'm, I'll, I'll do things. But even if you did all of those things, and let's say by some impossible miracle you succeeded. What about every sin that you have committed up until now? What's going to be dealt with there? The whole point of this teaching is for Jesus to paint an impossible picture to show our need for him. I cannot be perfect as God in heaven is perfect, but the human 
part of Jesus, the fully human part of Jesus, was perfect, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. The human part of Jesus was more righteous than any person who has ever lived. The human part of Jesus was worthy to go to the cross on my behalf and on your behalf. The whole point of all of this is not about, oh, have I, have I broken oath today? Uh, have I murdered somebody in my mind today? Uh, have I shown enough love for my enemies? I better make sure I know who all my enemies are. The whole point of this is to show us that we can't do it, but Jesus has. And that's why we talk about forgiveness. The big word is justification, being made right before God. Because none of us can, but Jesus offers us his righteousness. And that's why we talk about sanctification, being set apart, being made like Jesus. Because in this life, we can live in the misery of all of this, or we can say, Jesus, make me more like you, so that I can have victory in this life and the promise of the life to come. Would you join me now and respond to what God has said in a time of prayer? Let's pray together. Hey, maybe I read through this list of these verses and you felt guilty because you know where you have fallen short. I know that as I read through them, I knew where I had fallen short. So as we start our time of prayer this morning, I want you to know that God loves us and he has forgiven us. But where we feel guilt, we need the grace and the mercy and the cleansing of Jesus. So let's pray together. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we have fallen short. And as we in our own hearts name the things that we have fallen short, name the sins that we have done, name the murder, we name the adultery and the lust, we name the greed, we name the dishonesty, we name the lack of love. As we name these things before you, we trust in your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. And Lord, we ask for your power because we don't want to keep living in these things. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Fill us so that we can walk in your ways. Make us more like you, Jesus, because you are perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you that any person, no matter who they are, what they've done, can believe in Jesus, follow him, and experience his forgiveness and his new victorious life. And we pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. God loves you. He has forgiven the sins of everyone who believes and follows Jesus. And that forgiveness is there for us today as we walk forward in his strength. We'll see you this week in the small groups and next Sunday at 10.30 a.m.